I'd like you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's, uh, it's that time of year when students are graduating from high school, from university, and I remember when I was graduating from university, or I was supposed to be graduating from university, we were preparing our yearbook and we were asked to bring our grad picks and our baby picks. And when my classmates saw my baby pictures, they said, RJ, you were so cute when you were a kid. What happened? <laughs> and I guess when we look at the world around us and we compare the world that we see with the account in Genesis 1 of a beautiful world well-suited to display God's perfections, we can't help but ask, what happened? And our affirmations on Satan and humanity help to explain what happened. So let's read the affirmation on Satan. Satan, also called the devil, exists as an evil personal spirit being who opposes the work of God in the world. Although created as a good angelic being, he originated rebellion against God and continues to serve, to use his real but limited power to oppose all that would serve the glory of God and the good of humankind. Then we'll go to the affirmation on humanity. Human beings were created by God to be like him in every way, which is necessary to exist in relationship with him and to serve as God's visible representatives in the exercise of responsible dominion over the created world. Our first parents sinned by disobeying an explicit divine command and thus brought ruin on the human race. The Bible describes this ruin in terms of death. Spiritual death, which involves corruption at the core of our being, so that humans are by nature totally incapable of pleasing God. Physical death, which is the destiny of all humans, and ultimately eternal death, involving permanent separation from God as the destiny of all those who refuse to repent and respond to God's offer of grace. And we're in Genesis 1 to 3 because these chapters tell the story behind these affirmations. In Genesis 1, we begin with this reality. God made a good world for his glory. Even now, all of creation testifies to the majestic power, creativity, and wisdom of our God. And over and over in Genesis 1, the creation account emphasizes God's power through the following words. And God said, and it was so. When you read Genesis 1, you hear those words over and over. And that is a Hebraic device, repetition, in order to emphasize it. 
In case you miss it the first time, it gets repeated over and over. God accomplished everything by his powerful word. In no way, shape, or form was God frustrated or limited. So that we also recognize that God was pleased with what he had made. Because the text also keeps telling us, God saw that it was good. And at the end of God's creating, we are told in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God was delighted with his work, and so he pronounced it very good. And that means that it served God's purpose of displaying his glory. It is very good because it reveals God's perfections to the fullest. And then in chapter 2, we are told that God rested. And since God created by his powerful word, it's not that God was tired. It is because God was absolutely satisfied with his creation. God, in his grace and kindness, had created the world to be a place of beauty and flourishing. And we know that because we are told in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 22, that God blessed the animals, the birds, the, the land animals, and gave them the food to enjoy. And then in verse 28, he also blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply. It speaks of God's desire for his creatures to enjoy this world that he had made, and more than that, to enjoy him, because he made us in his image. That is the ultimate display of his goodness in chapter 1, presenting mankind made in God's image as the climax of God's good creation. Then we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 25, which fleshes out what it means to be God's image, to be made in God's image, as it focuses our attention on Adam and Eve in relationship with God. So let's read Genesis 2, verse 4, up to verse 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heaven, the earth, and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on that earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed." The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. 
The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This now is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, let's start with recognizing this, that our being made in God's image establishes our fundamental identity. Genesis 1 to 3 tells us that our identity is something we receive, not something that we construct for ourselves. And being dependent creatures under God's rule ought to humble us. And that is why we do not celebrate pride. Instead, we repent of our pride. And I mean that. We need to recognize that as human beings, Infected with Adam's fallenness. Our first posture must be repentance. We repent of our arrogance, of our selfishness, of our being curved in on ourselves. Recognizing that we don't need to exalt ourselves. Because being made in the image of God actually honors us. I remember... C.S. Lewis and um, Prince Caspian saying, Aslan saying to Prince Caspian, you know, to be a son of Adam is humbling enough to bring down an emperor, but it is also great enough to exalt a beggar. And that's what being made in the image of God is all about. It both humbles and honors us. So that we need to give thanks for the beauty of God's design. Because the givenness of being made in God's image imparts to us absolute and unchanging dignity. Imparts to us our lasting worth and unchanging significance. 
and to have our identity defined by God frees us from the impossible bondage of self-creation. We'll get into that later, but here is the wonder of what it means to be made in the image of God. Peter Gentry writes, Adam, indeed all humanity, is created as God's image son. That's why we say that it is an honor. We are a priest king to rule over creation. Adam is created in relationship with God as he mediates God's rule to the world. He does not need to merit favor before God. Yet God, as holy and just, demands perfect obedience from his covenant partner. See, that's the glory of being made in the image of God. And we see God having formed in chapter 2, found Adam from the dust and given him life. Taking Adam, verse 15, and putting him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And scholars like Gregory Beale have pointed out that the language that is used here of to serve and to work it and take care of it actually echoes the work of the priests in the temple. And that implies that Adam wasn't just a farmer, as wonderful as that is. Adam, in farming Eden, was actually serving God as a priest. So that Eden is actually being described here as God's royal temple. Because God is present in Eden, walking in the garden. And Adam, in being commanded to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, is to do that by extending the borders of Eden until the whole earth becomes God's holy temple. And he had the privilege of fulfilling that task in covenant relationship with God, expressed in God's instruction. Verse 16 and 17, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. See, God had provided for Adam generously. He could eat from every tree, except for one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, God was not holding out on Adam. God was actually using that to demonstrate that God was Adam's ruler, Adam's king, whom he represented. The command was to tell Adam that God defines good and evil. Good is following God's instruction and depending on him for guidance. God was showing Adam how he would flourish in obedient relationship. In a world where all needs were satisfied by God, Adam would learn right from wrong as he submitted himself to the boundaries that God had established. And that would be freedom, and joy to the fullest. And God even demonstrates his infinite wisdom and boundless generosity in the gift of Eve from verse 18 to 24. 
See, there was this interesting situation. God had so abundantly provided, Adam didn't know that he was, his life was incomplete. But God knew. So God said, in a world that is very good, God, that is good, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See, made in the image of the triune God, Adam was made for community, and so are all of us. But Adam didn't know it. And so God sensitized Adam to his need by having him name the animals. It was indeed an outworking of Adam's calling to subdue the earth as God's representative. But the naming of the animals also showed him in verse 20 that for Adam, no suitable helper was to be found. God was making Adam realize something's missing. And so God puts him to sleep, takes a rib out of Adam, forms a woman, and brings her to Adam. And so in verse 23, we hear his delight and excitement. This is now bone of my bones. This is Adam jumping for joy. Finally. Yes. Awesome. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we are told in verse 25, they were naked and unashamed because they delighted in their freedom as God's image bearers, living in harmony as equals. Under God's beneficent rule, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. They enjoyed unfettered intimacy, helping and supporting each other as they tended the garden. And you can imagine them happily discovering the varied flavors and textures of the fruit they were gathering. And the highlight was that they would walk with God in the garden communing with him, delighting in him. The garden was a temple where Adam and Eve spent their days worshiping God through their work. It was indeed a paradise. But one day, Satan slithered into the garden as a serpent. And he created discontent in Eve's heart, asking her, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve, to her credit, corrects her, corrects him. But her addendum, you must not touch it or you will die, tells us that Somehow, in her mind, she didn't consider God's command to be good anymore. And so Satan takes it one step further. He goes from casting doubt on the goodness of God to outright accusation. God is lying to you. He's holding out on you. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan is portraying God as a cosmic killjoy. He's holding you back, Eve. He's keeping you ignorant. You gotta fight the man. He offers her the prospect of having her eyes opened and becoming like God because she would know the difference between good and evil. Never mind that she already knew the difference between good and evil through that same tree. Satan was offering her the possibility of determining what is good for herself. Autonomy. She could go beyond the limits God had imposed. She could be free. All she needed to do was to take one bite. What a bite that would be. See, to Eve's eyes, this fruit was physically desirable, aesthetically pleasing, spiritually transformative. Notice what the text says. Eve saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food, physically desirable, pleasing to the eye, aesthetically wonderful, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, spiritually transformative. And here's the sad part. The author now begins to echo the creation account's repeated affirmation. God saw that it was good, As Eve sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food. He was showing that Eve was now beginning to put herself in the place of God. And so just as God took the man, verse 15, chapter 2 verse 15, and put him in the Garden of Eden. And in chapter 2 verse 21, took one of the man's ribs we are told in chapter 3, verse 6, Eve took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And sure enough, their eyes were opened but their knowledge only brought grief. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized they were naked, but the delightful freedom of nakedness was now to them a point of shame. They sewed fig leaves to cover themselves, to hide their nakedness from each other. It's telling us that the trust and intimacy between Adam and Eve had been shattered. But the most painful alienation is to come in verse 8. They were separated from God. Because when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, they hid. They were now afraid to face the one who was their delight. But 
but a tragedy. Thankfully, God would not give up on Adam and Eve. Instead, God pursued Adam and Eve to confront them with their covenant breaking. God calls Adam out of hiding to make him acknowledge what he had done. And God condemns the serpent to constant humiliation. He will eat the dust and tells him of his ultimate defeat to the seed of the woman in chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And though Satan, though Adam had the gall to shift blame on God in chapter 3, verse 12, when God says, did you eat? Adam says in verse 12, well, the woman you put here with me. You notice how he's saying, God, you gave her to me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Really manly, Adam. Good job. Pass the buck. God still continued to be gracious. He passes judgment tempered with mercy. Eve would suffer pain and childbearing and her relationship with her husband would be a constant power struggle. Verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Sorry, ladies. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And Adam would be a frustrated farmer whose meals would be spoiled by the fatigue of his striving to till ground that is cursed because of him. And their end would be death. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, since Adam was our representative, we share his guilt and condemnation. And we are partners in his rebellion. Deep down, we too still want to be as God. And we suffer the consequences of buying into the lie that we are masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. I'll let Alan Noble describe our contemporary condition. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. That's our contemporary philosophy, is it not? But the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression but because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity, 
Society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance, not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Life is marked by unrestrained desire and consumption. Either we desire ever, ever greater heights of self-mastery and excellence, or ever more entertainment and pleasure, or both. The market is happy to aid us in these quests. But unlimited desire and consumption always leave us exhausted and empty. How many of us talk about burnout? How many of us talk about being worn out and tired? Sadly, unlimited desire and consumption are our society's version of fig leaves. And they're just as inadequate as the fig leaves that Adam and Eve sowed together. But here's our hope. God continued to be gracious to Adam and Eve. Before banishing them from Eden, he replaced those pathetic fig leaves with garments of animal skins. And better yet, he kept that promise that there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Hundreds of years later, the second person of the triune God became man born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And when he was baptized by John the Baptist, God the Father announced, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's Luke chapter 3. And then that's followed by this big genealogy at the end of which says that Adam was the son of God. Then we are told, Luke chapter 4, the passage Ainsley read, filled with the Spirit, Jesus went into the wilderness to do battle with Satan as the second Adam, the son of God. Adam and Eve fell in a garden filled with food. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, famished after 40 days of fasting. But here's the amazing thing. Though Satan did his worst, Jesus remained faithful to God, trusting his Father's word and obeying him all the way. And that victory of Jesus anticipated an even greater triumph. Jesus obeyed his whole life up to the point of death, even death on the cross. It seemed on the cross as if Satan had triumphed. But Jesus' death was the very means by which he crushed the serpent's head. His death paid the price for our sin. And his resurrection signals God accepted his sacrifice. 
he has purchased us for himself. And we, through faith, we who trust in him, share in that same triumph. Our sins are forgiven. His righteousness is credited to us. Through faith, we are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. And united with Christ, we rise with him into the new creation that he brought into existence by his resurrection. I'm going to preach on this next week. Now we are new creation. We are now being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ, the faithful Son And no, we're not clothed in animal skins. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that with new hearts, we are now able to embrace the gift of being owned by this God. We are safe and secure in our identity because our identity is grounded in the person and worth of Jesus, the Son of God. That's our security. So we are assured of our value and significance, not because of anything you and I have done, but because we are in Christ, the infinitely precious Son is the basis of our worth and our hope as the people of God is that one day he will return. We shall see him, and when we see him, we shall be like him. And this broken world will be made new. And we shall enjoy him to the fullest for all eternity. That's our hope. That's the joy, the delight that we proclaim. And if you are here, you resonate with what Alan Noble said. You know deep within the burden of self-creation. And please understand, you don't have to go through that treadmill. In fact, you shouldn't be on that treadmill. You should get off and join us. Join us in humbling ourselves before the sovereign Lord who made us and acknowledge that you are made in this image. But just like us, you're broken beyond repair. Worse than Humpty Dumpty. But recognize also that there was a man, the Son of God who became man, who lived that perfect life, fully pleased his Father, who paid the penalty for our sin and condemnation. Through faith in him, we will be made new, made whole, restored to right relationship with this God who made us. I pray that you would join us and know with us this wonderful joy of saying we are not our own. We belong to God 
and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the privilege, for the comfort and security of knowing that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, even as we rejoice in this privilege, we must confess that too often we get distracted and we forget that that is the basis of our worth and significance. Too often, we buy into our world's narrative that points to success, popularity, and achievement as means of establishing our worth. Forgive us for getting caught up in that. Help us, first of all, to repent of our idolatry and help us to recognize the joy of being found in Christ. That you would make Christ more precious to us than we could ever imagine. That you would cause us to see each day more and more the glory, the beauty of our Savior. So that we would cling to him. And in clinging to him, delight in him. And delighting in him, proclaim him to those around us. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.